Hello, this is Everything Else, a new podcast from the Financial Times in which we promise not to talk about the stock market and we definitely won't bring up the state of the pound. Basically, anything that isn't finance, we'll cover it. That could be art, food, books or music. In today's show, we call the FT's arts editor, Jan Daly, in New York to find out what it's like to interview the infamous performance artist Marina Abramovich. Also, we've got the radical Belgian theatre director, Ivo van Hover, whose work is everywhere right now. He comes into the studio to tell us how his punk origins still inspire his work. And we'll also be talking about how self-absorbed we all are, or aren't, and consider whether we are living in an age of narcissism. My name's John Sonia. And I'm Griselda Murray-Brown. So we're both culture editors here at the FD, and a while ago we decided that we wanted to do a podcast. We both love podcasts, and we talk about them quite a lot as well as lots of other things in culture. John is my go-to guy for what's new in fiction, and I'm always trying to persuade him to go and see more theatre. Which doesn't work, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we thought we might as well record all this stuff and call it work, get a bit of kudos. And appropriately enough, our first panel discussion is all about narcissism. Yay! (laughs) It seemed so easy when we were talking about the podcast back in the summer in Borough Market in South London. Yep, sitting in the sun. Now it's December and it's finally happening and it all feels very real. So, right, we're kicking off with this discussion about narcissism, whether it's on the rise. So, this is a pretty bold move for our first ever panel discussion. Why did you want to talk about narcissism, John? Because, you know me, I wanted to know whether the amount I think about myself is normal. I can tell you it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. It's basically one of those things that is seemingly inescapable right now. There are so many articles and features written about it, including in FT Weekend. There are lots of good books. It's something people pitch to us all the time. We have a US president who seems almost the embodiment of the term. Yes, we do. Yeah, a few different reasons. So we're joined in the studio by Peter Aston, the former FT arts writer and all-round opinionator. Hi, Peter. Hello. How are you? Hi. I'm very well. Well, quite well. I'm recovering from a cold, thanks. And uh, it's very lovely to be back here. As you know, I left the staff of the FT on November the 30th of last year, and I kind of made a promise to myself that I wouldn't come back within a year. I think everyone should have at least a year. You know, there's nothing worse than people kind of hanging around. And I've just failed to fulfil no. that promise. I'm here on the November. <laughs> you know. um, but it's great to be here. Well, Peter, thank you for coming in. And also with us today is Emma Balkett, our Director of Photography at the FT Weekend magazine. Hey, Emma. Thank you very much for inviting me on. First episode. Yeah, very exciting. And so before we all came in the studio, Griselda which I'm not sure was the best idea in the world, sent us um, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, which consisted of 40 questions. And um, each question was a pair of statements, such as, modesty doesn't become me, or I'm essentially a modest person. I would do almost anything on a dare. I tend to be a fairly cautious person, and so on. So let's find out who is the most narcissistic among us at this table. I scored nine. 14. Peter? I scored 20, a thumping 20. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to A big beat fat that. 20. And I scored a very modest three. Oh, oh, oh no way. Can I just be for the first oh. to denounce this test for its ridiculously <laughs> binary nature and dialectical naivety? And I'm not a narcissist, honest. Well, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, narcissists think that they are narcissists and they're proud of being narcissists. So I think we're all safe, in fact. 
Oh, Don't okay. worry, guys. All you high wrong. scorers. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, we used to work together on the arts desk, and I bumped into you last week at an opening, and I asked you to be on the podcast because I felt that you might have some interesting things to say about narcissism, and particularly the role of the kind of me generation. Before we get into that and playing the, the blame game, I know that you like a good Greek myth, so I wanted to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about Narcissus? Who was he? Yeah, well, it's great. It's one of the great ones and one of the one of the myths, the stories that has really endured. Um, uh, well, let's start with Echo. Echo was a beautiful woman who crossed Hera, the wife of Zeus, which is always a very bad idea in Greek mythology. Uh, Hera put a curse on her. The nature of the curse was that she was not able to begin any of her sentences, Right, <laughs> um, which is where, of course, we get the the term echo from. Uh, it all kinds of make, makes kind of weird sort of logic. Echo falls in love with this very beautiful youth, Narcissus, and they kind of get together. But Narcissus presumably gets bored by the fact that he never hears the beginning of any of her sentences <laughs> and rejects her. And she gets very sad, prays to Aphrodite to take her away, and she just withers away. And Narcissus sits next to a pool or a pond or a river and finds his reflection and gets absolutely obsessed by his reflection to the extent that he's almost paralyzed. He can't move, he can't act, he just loves looking at himself in this reflection. And eventually he too withers away. It's a very powerful allegory. Hmm. And seemingly the word is used in so many different ways today and has been, if we fast forward just to the kind of the late 19th and early 20th century, Freud and all his kind of psychoanalyst pals believed the desire for same sex was actually perversion of real love in which self-admiration was projected onto someone so similar he could serve as a mirror so it's kind of interesting how we have so many different um, yeah totally it's been used it seems like it's such a fluid term and actually it's interesting that people often conflated or kind of linked narcissism with femininity Mm. and milton takes ovid's metamorphosis and the story of narcissus and he uses that kind of looking into the pool and looking at your reflection to describe eve in the garden of eden and Mm -hmm. saying that you know this is her flaw this is why she was susceptible to sin because because she had this vanity we've gone from that to now thinking about donald trump and this is like you know the epitome of the the big white mm. male. And apparently nothing in America is growing more quickly than obesity rates since the 1980s, <laughs> except for narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> so well, at le- There are many different uh, refractions of the word narcissism, but at least one important difference, I think, is that um, the Greek myth, I think, very much speaks of the almost warns against the transcendent power of beauty. Ancient Greeks were obsessed by beauty. It's in the statues, it's in all the art. And this is a youth that was so beautiful, he he devours himself with self-love. What worries me about the contemporary version of narcissism is that, you know, people become celebrities, people become famous, but there's none of that sense that they have a transcendent quality about them. Narcissism rendered banal. Because they're famous for being famous, which I think is the interesting thing. And Emma, I guess it's interesting to think here about sort of social media and things like Instagram and how people do actually kind of become famous. And I wondered, do you think taking selfies, presenting yourself as we do on on social media, is that inherently narcissistic, do you think? I think it's a, I think it's a, a simple way of thinking about it Mm. but I think it's much more complex than that I think a lot of people who are using social media whether it's Tumblr or whether it's Instagram are are more taking ownership of self so they are maybe 
people who are on the peripheries of the social norm, say. Mm. I read a piece by Rachel Syme called The Selfie that was on Medium, and she talks extensively about this and invites people to send in selfies and also a little bit of information about themselves. And there were some interesting patterns, people who were taking this idea of who I am and presenting themselves to say that I exist, I am here. So these are people that we might not have heard from before. Exactly. We now a, have a, voice. a man with depression, a young boy who was going through gender questions and had come out as as transgender. You know, the other interesting thing about using social media is the hashtag. So by hashtagging trans or gay or you know whatever it is, they are then aligning themselves with a subcultural group, which we've been doing for forever, you know. Mm. I think it's too simple to say that we are a nation, you know, that we've become more self-obsessed. Mm. I think it's a complex and interesting narrative but to do we unpack. Think, do we think kind of Twitter and social media and Instagram, do we think they kind of convince people that being followed means they're important? If I could just give you a, a brief a brief anecdote of a thing that happened to me on a holiday uh, last year. I was on a beach in Greece. My family and I were there. We were the first people on this very gorgeous beach. And then we were joined by a couple. And a couple. It was a middle-aged man and a wife quite a lot younger than him. And he was taking pictures of her by the beach. And, and they, they seemed very in love. And they were frolicking amid the, the, the shallows, you know. And, um, and I thought, uh, just and I thought I'll, I'll do the decent thing. And I went up and said, should I take a picture of the two of you and it, with this beautiful thing? And they looked kind of slightly puzzled and bewildered. They yeah. probably had a selfie stick. Well, yes, yeah, this is it, you see. So I took this picture. I said, <laughs> thank you, thank you. And there was only the two of us, my family and those two people. And then about two minutes later, you say selfie stick, it was more like a kind of crane. It was some extraordinary contraption. And they spent, I'm not joking, something like an hour and a half taking pictures of themselves in borderline pornographic poses on the speech. And, and I felt such an idiot. I just, you know, nothing makes you feel older than you know, the idea that I would actually do the decent thing and, uh, and take a picture of themselves. So... Um, yeah, my optimistic view about, I mean, I, I just kind of slightly share Emma's thing about about people finding some kind of affirmation. Um, the problem is, I think, when they seek validation and the validation doesn't arrive, and then also it can get very insulting and nasty, mm. and that's obviously something we all know about with yeah. social media. I like to think in my that maybe we're getting more sophisticated about ideas of ourselves mm. and <clears throat> that we're kind of embracing the multiplicity of the self that, you know, if I take Instagrams about uh, of an evening out and I put this out, this is the side of me that loves to have a bit mm. of a rave on a Friday night. But that's not all I am. I'm, I'm lots of different things. Yeah, I think there is there can be a problem there because that side of you that you put out on Instagram is kind of your best self. That's you living your best life. Or, not, or, or it can not be... Always. Yeah, it not can always. Not always. Mostly. You can be a troubled self. <laughs> and I share your concern about looking for support online because I think it doesn't always come and what does that do to to self if you're if you're relying on that to to feel good but I don't think it's always lovely examples that I've seen are people who are very much imperfect and celebrating that through presenting themselves and saying this is who I am and you're saying there's something about joining a community that's saying I am imperfect or I don't conform to 
the normal standards of beauty or normality or whatever. Yeah. But here I am. They become the editors, someone taking 200 pictures of themselves. Mm. Also, going back to the thoughts about it being something that was focused on women, you know, when the traditional male gaze is in place to then have a female gaze to be empowering yourself. Mm. So you're kind mm. of taking so authorship. You're taking authorship. And these are all bits of the self, isn't it? I mean, one, sure. one phrase which has really gained currency is this, uh, I want to be the best version of myself. You know, it's kind of weird American sure. thing, you know. <laughs> but it already presupposes quite a sophisticated idea of the self. I'm not just this person. I'm lots of different people. And I might want to emphasize this part today and tomorrow this part. And that's quite a, strikes me as a very modern, or indeed postmodern phenomenon, which is interesting. And it does tie into this idea of narcissism. I think John and I have slightly different different views on this. John, what's your what's your feeling? Are, are we becoming more narcissistic through all these things we've been talking about? You know, I don't think we are at all today. Like um, Peter and I, we mentioned it before we came on today. Like Tom Wolfe wrote that um, amazing cover story for New York magazine way, way back in 1976 called The Me Generation, in which he writes, you know, the dream today is all about changing one's personality, remaking, remodeling, elevating and polishing one's very self and observing and studying and doting on it. So I think narcissism has been around for such a long time and what's changed is just the tools with which we promote and create ourself. And those tools are just way, way more visible. The modern version of narcissism starts in the 1960s, I think. I mean, I think um, yeah. I think the so-called greatest generation, the people who fought in the war, you know, my dad, really, you know, they didn't have a shred of narcissism because they, they had made extraordinary sacrifices and were used to that idea. In the 1960s, you get this fascinating contrast between... Uh, social solidarity and wanting to change the world and all that kind of thing, but also the birth of ultra-consumerism. Um, I think the case is made in the V&A show, um, A Revolution at the moment, where you Which move... Which is about 1966 to 70, 66 right? to 70, yeah. exactly, yeah. the late 60s. You move from a room which is all about the Black Panthers and violence and wanting to put, push through social change at a very, very fast rate. And from that room, you move to a room that has a massive mirror. Mm. And you go into, mm. and this is the beginning of the consumer revolution as well. Yeah. So the individual and the social, it was all there. Since then, I think we've been pretty much non-stop narcissistic, you know, in very different <laughs> ways. Uh, the 70s, I think the 70s was a, was a sort of time where there's disillusionment in the 60s. So you started thinking about self-help, personal growth, mm. looking inwards. The 80s, we had Thatcher, Reagan, the individual as entrepreneur, get rich quick, loads of money. The 90s was kind of a rather odd decade, but you do get this great sitcom, Seinfeld, which is famously um, the show about nothing and which has the ultimate yeah. narcissistic cast of characters for whom we have absolutely no sympathy at all because they're all horrible, yet it's very funny. Yeah, I would I would completely agree with that. And I think slightly taking issue with what John said, I, I think we have always been narcissistic, but it seems like we are products of the culture that we live in and the sort of social norms that we have. And I think nowadays we live in a time where, you know, way into your 30s you can be effectively irresponsible in that you have no dependents, you have no children. And so you have a kind of a natural inclination to think about yourself more, to think about how you're kind of promoting yourself, to think about your own career and your friendship circles and all of this kind of thing. I think this is quite brilliantly um, put across in the HBO show Girls, which I'm sure you guys have all seen. And these characters are kind of ultimately pretty vain, pretty 
unlikable in a sense and that's kind of what makes them believable so I think in a sense the tools that we have if this is Instagram for example shape our behavior which then shapes our thoughts and shapes who we are so I think our identities are kind of malleable to an extent there isn't I don't believe a kind of essential human nature that has always been narcissistic yeah, and that is a bit worrying. I think I don't want. To, I, th- I don't think we should be too soft on narcissism. I mean, it, you know, I do worry that those great things that came out in the Second World War and 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 the construction of of the welfare state and all those things that happened after the war, uh, the construction of the European Union, dare I say it, uh, fired by idealism. Um, and a sense of civic obligation, and I do feel that is very under threat. And recent events, I think, are extremely alarming. Um, there doesn't seem to be uh, any kind of solidifying bond in the political discourse. There doesn't even seem to be an idea of a polity, you know, in the great ancient Greek sense. Um, so in a way, we've kind of accommodated narcissism yeah, or narcissistic that's traits. The danger. Yeah, that's absolutely the danger. I think. So I think, I mean, just to, to bring things to a close, we did want to end by thinking about why do we fear narcissism? And it seems, Peter, like that sort of shift away from thinking about the communal to the individualistic is something that kind of you're, that you're saying is something to worry about. Yeah, I, I absolutely, I think. And I, I think the US election, you know, one can spend a lifetime studying the effects of this US election. Well, we won't, we won't know the effects for a long time, but it's such an extraordinary turning point it feels like a turning point to me and not a good one and I think narcissism does come into that both from the person propagating it at the top seem to be the top of the free world but also the people voting for strange reasons we've done pretty well so far actually to get through a discussion about narcissism and not mention Donald Trump that much but he he has to be named I think Emma do you think that narcissism I mean You've put a very persuasive case that actually isn't necessarily on the rise and that self-expression, I think we all feel, is to be applauded. But do you think there's anything to be feared here in the way things are going? Sure. I think the argument just needs to be more balanced. And I'm thinking that it's not a straightforward case for if you are promoting yourself over social media, then that necessarily means that you're a selfish person. Um, Why don't you take selfies, Emma? I follow you oh, on Instagram. I feel awkward. <laughs> I find it embarrassing. And, uh, but you know, I understand I have friends who take selfies all the time and I love looking at pictures of them and it's just not my thing. I certainly I looked don't you take up. selfies. I looked you up to see if you had an Instagram take. Well, I tried to take one the other day. Oh, I was with my daughter and got severely reprimanded for my technique, for my poor technique. <laughs> You've got long arms. She te- well, I have got long arms. She tells stick. me it's, it's not, not supposed to look like a selfie. So this is a kind of interesting oh. inflection, you know, that it's the selfie that pretends not to be a selfie. The software, the software has become very sophisticated. So you can clap your hand and that will trigger the, you know, there are all sorts of things that then make it look as so if you're, your arm is not outstretched. So you're trying to pretend that there's some, well, I someone don't know nice what. like me offering to take a picture. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's full circle. So, John, just, just to finish up, are you convinced now that you might take a selfie? Well, we all broadly seem to agree that it's okay to take selfies, and there are very good reasons for doing so, but I feel kind of, I'm a bit like Emma, I feel super uncomfortable doing it. 
and have done it before, obviously, like everyone our age. But mm. <laughs> I'm not sure. I know we're going to take one at the end of this podcast as well. Yes, we so are. So we can see how that goes. Um, Peter can stretch his long arm out and we can yeah, try and make it look natural. Yeah, okay. I'll go for that. Hello. John, it's John. How are you? Oh, hi, John. I'm fine. How are you? Good, thank you. So, you're in New York. You just had lunch yeah. with Maroon Abramovich, the performance yeah. artist. Where did she yes, Where did she take you? We went to a Japanese restaurant um, in um, the West Village, and it was absolutely delicious, very relaxed, and couldn't have been nicer. Um, great atmosphere. Oh, cool. And what did you What did you eat and drink? We, well, I'm stone cold sober, I have to tell you. It's rather disappointing. Um, <laughs> but um, we had, I asked her if she'd choose for us. So she had already started on a pot of lavender tea. So I also had lavender tea. And I have to say, I won't be having it again in a hurry. I thought it was actually horrible. Oh, so not, not, a, not a boozy FT lunch. Not, oh. not a boozy FT lunch. Oh. Um, She's quite an out-there performance artist, and she's very, very serious. A lot of her work's about pain and endurance, so we were slightly nervous about sending you out there for this one. How was it? Was she nice? Well, it couldn't have been nicer. She's in person. She's very relaxed and warm and welcoming and generous with her time and completely unconfrontational. I mean, you'll remember that one of her most famous recent pieces just involves sitting on a chair in front of her and you sit and she sits and she looks at you and she doesn't say anything yeah, and people most literally people break into tears. <laughs> she was very chatty told me lots of stories okay so all in all it went well yeah it went very very well it was um, a really a very enjoyable she's a wonderful person and she has a most extraordinary life story and um, even though she is coming up to 70 amazingly she's going to be 70 in um, very few days time she does not seem it she's got the most unbelievable skin her skin honestly she could be 40 <laughs> so i said how do you get such good skin and she said well i i don't drink she never that's has always the key always um, no booze. she goes to retreats in india where she doesn't eat and stuff so amazingly although she's put her body through the most incredible endurance and stress and things that most of us wouldn't bear for five minutes she looks radiant it's quite it's quite extraordinary oh, lucky her okay well thank you so much dan you just need to write the piece now um, not, yeah i hope it's not too noisy it's a pretty noisy street here but hey it's downtown it's fine cool. good okay john see lovely you. to talk to you see you back in london John, I love that you were giving Jan her copy deadline then. Very strict. Yep, yep. Strict, strict editor hat on there. Okay, so next we're going to hear from the very brilliant theatre director, Ivo van Hover. He did Lazarus, the music by David Bowie, which is currently on in London. He's also directing Ruth Wilson in the Ibsen play Hedda Garbler at the National Theatre in London this month. And next year, he's directing Jude Law in a stage version of the Visconti film Obsession at the Barbican. Griselda, you're quite obsessed with him, so it's good he's kind of here, there and everywhere right now. 
Yeah, this is good news for me. I first came across Ivo van Hover um, when I went to see a view from the bridge at the Young Vic Theatre in London a couple of years ago. I was totally blown away by it. It then went on to transfer to the West End. It then went to Broadway. It won tons of Olivier Awards, lots of Tony Awards. So I'm not the only person who loved it, but it was very... It was very stripped back. There were no props. The actors didn't wear any shoes. It was very kind of raw, very intense. There was this amazing moment at the end where it suddenly starts raining blood and Foray's Requiem is playing. The people around me in the theatre were crying and shaking and it was this sort of collective moment of agony. It was was kind of amazing, actually. And also quite thespian-y. (laughs) <laughs> it, it it was admittedly quite espiony, but I think actually Evo explains it really beautifully in the interview. And Lazarus, the Bowie musical, actually also has some really striking scenes. The set is by Evo's partner in life and work. He's called Jan Verschwerfeld. And it has these amazing video projections. Uh, when the main character sings the Bowie song, Where Are We Now? There are these like swirling images of Berlin that appear all over the stage. Um, it's kind of about Bowie's time in Berlin in the 70s and the memories of that, walking along the streets. So it's this really, really beautiful moment in the production. The melody's very, very simple, but it soars. Um, and we're going to hear a clip from that song, I think, in a moment. So here's Ivo van Hover in the studio talking to me. I was called not so long ago, you're a trash, the bad boy avant-gardist. And now suddenly they realize that it's open for a larger audience than I could ever have imagined. Every entertainment you can have at home, just push the button of your television, you have it. To go to a theater and spend a lot of money, you better present them with something really exclusive. And that's what the audiences are longing for. I always brought the real stuff on stage. I bring Shakespeare, I bring Arthur Miller. So I bring the real stuff, but in a way that resonates with people today. And I use things that are available like video, like music, like microphones that are available today. And I think audiences also in the so-called mainstream theater are open to that at this moment. Theatre for me is is my life. Eh? In a way that what I feel, what I think, what I have to tell about other human beings, about how they behave, how they should behave, how they shouldn't behave, about the world, all these things are in my productions. What i always aiming for is to give the audience the most personal, unique experience in their life with that particular text or with that particular material you know i try for the utmost best so i'm not going for average for middle of the road everybody can do that i'm belgian flemish lived in a very small village 2000 people i was the son of uh, the pharmacist it was a village of farmers and people that were like really hard laborers. I was there until my 11th year and I was actually unhappy. I didn't feel at home there. Then I was lucky that my parents put me in a boarding school. All boys, 800 of them. And there I discovered theater actually by coincidence. 
every Wednesday afternoon there was no no education but you could choose to do sports or you could go into town to meet the girls of course <laughs> or you could uh, join a theater group and I did that I really don't know why God must exist <laughs> I don't know That warmth of having a secret together and working on something and then showing it and getting an applause, you know, that was really for me like mind blowing. And I did it for the whole six years. There I discovered that I felt home in that world. I felt in myself I'm not a very good actor, so I, then I went to law school. But then in the third year of the, I discovered myself suddenly in the library. And I thought, well, I was here yesterday, I will be here tomorrow, and I will be here in 20 years. That's not what I want in my life, so I quit that moment. Uh, Jan Verswijfeld, my scenographer and partner, we worked together now for 36 years. We made every theater production and every opera production together. I made one movie, he refused to work on that one. I will never forgive him for that. <laughs> so we did everything together. So it's a life in theater and in designing and in working together and living together. That's sometimes hard. The fact that you're always together is seems to be nice, but I think when you use a little bit your imagination, we are always together in the same stress. So that makes it sometimes hard. But the good thing about our collaboration is that even after 36 years, never a dull day with us, you know, because we still push each other, we challenge each other. In the early 80s, I met Jan, and Jan was part of art school, and I was studying in Brussels, and we met, and it was a time, of course, it was a very grim time. It was the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, the time of punk, AIDS was not there yet, or it was there yet, but we didn't know about it. It was a time of total freedom. Fuck you to everybody. It was a crisis time also. It was also the time of the nuclear missiles. A grim world. And it's at that time that Jan and me, we decided that we wanted to make theater together. So we had no money, but we had a few friends. And of course, we went to the bars in Antwerp and having a drink. And there emerged that idea of setting up, a, you would call it now a brasserie, a grand café. You know, but we were 20, you know, it was like no money. People still talk about it because we called it Café Illusion. It was a, the hip place to be, it turned out. We did it only for two years because we were almost broke at the end, you know. So we were kind of entrepreneurs in a time where that was nobody did that. Where are we now? Where are we now? The moment you know, you know, you know. Since Bowie died, for me, well, something changed. I knew long before he died that he was very sick, deadly sick. Fingers are he was uh, so good uh, when he came to rehearsals, when he came to see a run-through. 
uh, he always gave great comments in his typically David Bowie way, very short, you know, yeah, but really to the point. So I will, I will miss that. But of course, the whole show for the audience will be perhaps even much more clear than it was before we opened because it's full of, well, the sense of dying and what does living mean? What, you know, if you know that life on Earth is almost like a second, you know, a little particle in the galaxy, you know, we are not more than that. And when you're aware of that, what does it mean? And well, what's the good thing about the production is that what it means is that love is the most meaningful thing to live for. Sometimes I give workshops and I have one simple thing I do that. There is a, a line, there's three words, I love you. And when there's 10 people in the workshop, I ask everybody to think about how he or she would say that line. Then you get automatically 10 different interpretations because the simplest line in the world, I love you, I can say I love you. That means, but I doubt if you love me. I can say I love you. That means perhaps we had a quarrel and my love was, was you know, and I can go on and on and on. So the objectivity of a text doesn't exist. My form is different because sometimes my Shakespeare doctors are lavish. Like Kings of War last year at the Barbican. It was Henry V, Henry VI and Richard III in a four-hour show. It was with live music on stage. It was lavish, you know. And at the opposite of that is View from the Bridge, for instance, where, which is very minimalistic, almost a Japanese no-theater. You should give the audiences not all the solutions, but you should give them a lot of questions to shake them up, to make them think, to make them feel. With a view from which, for instance, a lot of people said that at the end they had a hard time getting into the applause because they feel felt like choked. That's what we typically call a catharsis moment, and, you know, and that happened because of this rain of blood at the end and also because uh, of withholding all the aggression before that so and you felt it's gonna explode it's gonna explode when please explode it but it, no it doesn't happen but please do it almost like a sexual experience i've been saying about my productions that they are masked autobiographies behind it is indeed the diary of my life if you look back at it i think for instance, after 9-11, it's perhaps a cliché, but I don't consider it as a cliché. My life changed, but also my life in the theatre changed because of that. I started to make very warm, tender productions. I, for instance, I made scenes from a marriage from Ingrid Bergman. Everybody was saying, what are you making scenes from a marriage after a disaster? I said, yes, because we need a little bit of tenderness, a little bit of warmth, a little bit of togetherness. So that's the way that you have to think about this biographical thing. Of course, there is also a lot of... But I'm not going into this too deep. Eh? But my first production, which I ever made, I made it when I was 20. It's called Rumors. And that was based actually on my brother. He was two years younger than me. I spent my whole youth with him. And suddenly something happened to him. Uh, he got into a psychosis. Uh, 
wasn't clear to me because I was only 22. Is he schizophrenic? Is he bipolar? You know, it was that kind of brother relationship. And that was for me the, the start of uh, what became rumors. And I turned him into a silent boy, which was a central character, but he didn't say a word. Uh, so you didn't know what's going on into his mind. Why is he there? Is he going to explode? So everything was in that production, but I never talked about it. And that's my secret. And I need theater, like an, an author needs to write a novel about what he or she feels. But it's very personal to me. That was Ivo van Hover. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I'm so gutted I couldn't come to Lazarus with you. But you're going to go, right? Yeah, have I tickets. have tickets. Yeah, I have tickets for in a couple of weeks' time, so that's all good. So I'm getting there with a theatre persuasion. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, so this episode I've learned that Marina Abramovich looks great for 70. Ivo van Hover is certainly not Euro trash. And Griselda apparently is the least narcissistic person in the pod. I think this is a good time actually to draw attention to the fact, John, that you have three times as much narcissism as I do, according to the inventory that we did. Cool, thanks. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sonia. Our music is composed and produced by Fatim. Where Are We Now by David Bowie is from the album The Next Day on ISO Records in Colombia. You can subscribe to everything else on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll be hearing from Kate Tempest, the London writer, rapper, novelist. And let us know what you think about this episode at everythingelse at ft.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.